0: Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey. Just as we begin the sermon, you are given, I think, a piece of paper uh, when you came in the door, if you did. If you didn't, that's fine, or it might be in the pew. Uh, this is for next week. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what you want me to, to think about for a sermon, so if you've got any ideas, put it on that. People have been emailing me already. And there's great preachers in the room uh, with what I've received. But as we come together for the sermon today, um, I wonder if you would take a moment and meet the people around you with a very simple question. You know, the arts of, of books and music and art inspire us. And I wonder if you'd be willing to take a moment just to say to the people around you, uh, who, which writer or artist or musician encourages your life? So you might say, it's... Uh, Katy Perry, I don't know. You might say Leonard Coleman. You might uh, say Anne yates LeBaron. I don't know. Who inspires your life? Uh, and I want to invite you to meet the people around you. It's not a, it's not a quiz, it's just to share something in your life. Who, who really helps you as a writer, or a musician, and encourages your life, okay? So just take a minute or two, we're gonna take two minutes and uh, you'll know when it's time to finish. Who encourages your life? Thank you, let's, let us pray. give thanks for the awakening, for the murmuring, for the naming, for the sharing, for the remembering of those who have encouraged our life. Authors, artists, musicians, neighbors, friends, family, people who have encouraged us along the way. May the right word, the right word, come to us this day and may we know it comes from you, O God. May the meditation of our hearts and these words spoken this day lift us for the journey. Amen. This past Monday uh, I received a text that Frederick Beekner died. Frederick Beekner was 96 years old. He was a very significant writer in the, in America, from America, from Vermont, an amazing uh, novelist and theologian and he had a huge influence on the whole public theology over these last decades. He was someone who religious people loved, uh, that religious people hated, non-religious people loved, non-religious people hated. He wrote from his own life experience and on the desk here on the, the table I have a few of his books. You see, Frederick Buechner wrote from his own life experience, just like you and I could write from our own life experience. When Fred and his brother uh, were 10 years old, they were in the TV room, and they were playing and watching TV, and his father opened the door and peeked his head in and waved and said goodbye. They waved and said goodbye and turned back to the television. About an hour later, they looked out the window and they saw their mother and grandmother in pajamas, doing CPR on their father. Their father had gone to the garage and turned on the car, and the muffler completed his suicide. They were 10 years old. There was no funeral, no talk of the incident, and his mother had a philosophy of don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. Don't talk, don't trust, don't feel was the motto of their house. And it is from this kind of a life experience that he writes about life. The New York Times yesterday had a title for the eulogy of his life, The Man Who Found His Inner Depths. It's a story in the New York Times about how this kind of suicide, this kind of difficult experience becomes the fodder for which he tells the story of living in life's joys and sorrows. Fred Beekner was a person who didn't mind the shadow and dark side of life, and he opens our eyes to the life and grace that is life. An avid writer, he wrote 27 books. He invites you as a listener to explore and listen to your life, not in a narcissistic way, but a way to pay attention and discover your own inner story. He was ordained as a Presbyterian minister in New York City, something he regretted greatly. He said, I'm too religious for the secular reader and too secular for the religious reader. He said, I always want to reach out to the people who wouldn't come 10 feet from a church. He walked the line between the religious and non-religious life and this ordination he felt was a barrier for those who saw religious folk like me as a bit odd and crazy. And yet it's from that experience that he speaks to those through the theological language of truth-telling. He was one who also believed in holding the Bible and the newspaper together. He writes, Christians should get up every morning and read the New York Times and ask themselves, can I believe it all again today? If you say yes 10 out of 10 times, you probably don't know what believing means. But on days you can say yes, it should be a yes that is choked with confession, tears, and great laughter. Confession tears and great laughter. Beekner's honesty and vulnerability at life struggles was a gift for so many people. On faith, he writes this. Faith is homesickness. I love that. Faith is homesickness. Faith is a lump in your throat. Faith is less a position on than a movement forward. It is sensing a presence not buying an argument. There's so much written about doubt these days. He said, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. Doubt is the ants in the pants of faith that always keeps you wiggling and searching and trying to get comfortable. He says, if you don't doubt, you're either asleep or you're lying. (laughs) Doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. For me, he's always been a significant person in my life. Since I was ordained in 1988, one of the books I received that is down here is from a colleague who said, a mentor colleague who said, every Ord man needs a bit of Beakner in their life. And he introduced me to that. In his book, Telling the Truth, he talks about you. You're in the book, by the way talking about congregations on Sunday morning. Let's hear his words about you. So the sermon hymn, that's when they used to do a hymn right before the sermon, comes to a close with a somewhat unsteady amen. And the organist gestures to the choir to sit down Fresh from breakfast with his wife and children and a quick run through the Sunday papers, the preacher climbs the steps into the pulpit with his sermon in his hand. He hikes his black robe, black shorts, (laughs) at his knee so he will not trip over it on the way up. His mouth is a little dry. He has cut himself shaving. He feels as if he had swallowed an anchor. That's a great description of how I feel some Sundays. If it weren't for the honor of the thing, he would just as well soon to be somewhere else. In the front pews, the old ladies, sorry. (laughs) Old men. In the front pews, the old ladies and the old men turn up their hearing aids. The young lady slips her six year old a lifesaver and a magic marker. A college student home for vacation, who was there because he was dragged there, slumps forward with his chin in his hand. The vice president of a bank, who twice that week seriously contemplated suicide, places the hymn book back in the rack. A pregnant teenage girl feels the stir inside her. A high school math teacher who for 26 years has managed to keep his homosexuality a secret for most of his life, even from himself, creases the order of service down the center with his thumbnail and tucks it under his knee. The preacher pulls the little cord that turns the lectern light on and deals out their note cards like a riverboat gambler. <laughs> the stakes had never been higher. 2 minutes from now he may have lost the entire group. His listeners completely lost in their own thoughts, but at this moment, just prior to preaching, he has them in the palm of his hand. The silence in the shabby old church is deafening because everyone's listening to it. Everybody is listening, including himself. Everybody knows the kinds of things he's told them before and not told them, but who knows what this time out of the silence he will tell them. Let the preacher tell the truth. That's you. Isn't that how we come to church? All life experiences in this place, waiting for the right word for our life. Beekner says we have to listen to our life. In many ways, he was a contemplative long before that phrase was trendy. In a book called Now and Then, he says that the common task of all of us is to make God common. To pull God out of the clouds right beside us where we are because God is present beside us. He writes, listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery that it is in the boredom, the pain of it, no less than the excitement and the gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and the hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments and life itself is grace. Fred saw things we often overlooked and suddenly the overlooked becomes dominant. He encouraged people to find their calling. This is a great quote of his. He says, your vocation is where your deepest gladness meets the world's deep hunger. Your vocation in life is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. When he talks about life and people wondering who they are and what they should do, he said this. If you wanna know who you are, look at your feet. Look at your feet because your feet take you to who and what is important in life. Don't go to a library. Don't dig deep in a book, but perhaps just look down at your feet and imagine where your feet take you in life, because your feet take you to who and what is important in life. I had forgotten until this week that that was a quote I used at my father's eulogy. My dad was a minister, but he was most of all a walker. He loved to walk with different people. He loved to walk in different places. He loved to walk in grubby clothes and walk the street and pick up bottles and take them into the recycling and give his grandkids 40 cents. He walked with me in times when I wondered about a partner or worried about a job or wondered about money. He walked with me in an event called Miles for Millions. Does anybody remember that? I I have lovely memories of the blisters on my feet of the little passport you went to change the world as you went doorbell to doorbell, receiving the money and throwing it back in. My dad was a walker. And so when he says, you wanna know who you are, just take a few moments and sit back and look at your feet and wonder who you walked with, who you've walked with, who's walked with you. And suddenly you are filled with a generosity and gratitude for life that is mind blowing. Look at your feet, touch your hands, look at the miracle that is your body, God's body, your body as one. A few notches down from some of these books in my shelf in my library is a book called Whistling in the Dark. What a great title for a book. Beekner says this about tears. Unexpected tears are a sign that God is speaking to you through the mystery of where you have come from and is summoning you to where you're going. If your soul is to be saved, you should go next. He sees tears as a sign of God's presence. You know, when people will leave the church, they'll say to me some days as they go out the door, you made me cry, and I will quickly say, I did not make you cry, God made you cry because God's are God, tears are God's way of getting your attention, of helping you to know that heartache and heartbreak is where God meets us. You can hear Buechner laugh when he says, this is what I think saints are. You might put them in a church window, but saints are life givers. Saints are the one whose life, the power, and the glory are made manifest, yes, even though the saint herself maybe standing up to her ankles in mud. Saints not in stained glass, but saints with their feet stuck in the mud of ground and the messiness of life we all live. For me, Beekner was so helpful to me in my ministry. And I'm sharing some of this with you because you too, as the congregation or the speaker know that it is the words we are invited to hear and see in the mirror when we really stop and look at ourselves we can truthfully see and know we are a gift. One of Beekner's gifts was taking church words and making them sound so ordinary. The toughest yet most beautiful church word for me is grace. He writes, grace is something you can never get, but only be given. You don't go get it, it comes to you. There's no way to earn it. You can't earn it or deserve it or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream or earn good looks or bring about your own birth. Grace comes to you. And when I think of the stories that he talks about Jesus and Jesus' ministry, Jesus' entire ministry was about grace, about acceptance, about forgiveness, about invitation. Every story Jesus told could be called grace, whether it's the prodigal son, the surprising meal of Zacchaeus, the generosity of the good Samaritan, or the wine that ran out coming back at a wedding. Everything Jesus did was about grace. And Biekner wrote a book calling The Gospels, Tragedy, Comedy, and Truth-Telling. The words of Jesus his actions and gifts are an undeserved acceptance that make us cry and weep and laugh because suddenly for a second we understand what grace is. Grace is so hard to define, but it happened to me this week. I was laying in my bed in the middle of the night, and six weeks ago, I made the foolish and most beautiful mistake of my life by getting two kittens. (laughs) And this past week, I was taking care of my dog, two kittens, my son's dog and kitten, and all six of us were laying in the same bed at 3 in the morning. And you lay there like this. Because <laughs> you know if you move, they're all going to move. And it was three in the morning, and I was anxious. And as I lay there in my anxiousness like this, starting to count 199, 99, 98, 97, suddenly three little kittens landed on my chest. And like a heated, warm, weighted blanket, they purred. And they purred my anxiousness away. That's grace. I don't know what grace is for you, but I know that animals are grace. It's unconditional love they give us, it's their purring, it's their wag of their tail, the call from the skies. Birds, cats, dogs are grace. In a book he wrote called Alphabet of Grace, Beekner takes the theological stuffy word and says this grace is paying attention to the ordinary. You get married, a child is born or not born. In the middle of night, there's a knocking at the door. On the way home through the park, you see a man feeding pigeons. All the tests come in negative, and a doctor gives back your life again. Incident follows incident helter-skelter, leading apparently to nowhere. But then once in a while, there's a suggestion of a plot. The suggestion that however clumsily your life is trying to tell you something, it's trying to take you somewhere. That's grace. Grace is the appreciation of the now. We don't create it, we simply discover it. And in all of his writings he uses metaphors and images of ordinary stuff to speak about our ordinary life. And in all of it, it becomes extraordinary. Buechner wrote one of his books, that's one of my favorite called A Room Called Remember. And he says like this about life. At the age of 100, that 100-year-old, 100 they know what at my age I'm only just beginning to see. That it is, if it is by grace we are saved, it is also by grace, too, that we're lost. Grace saves us and grace makes us lost. Or at least... In the sense of losing ourselves, we lose our lives, our very all. So all is lost, and all is found, and all moments are key moments if we remember. I'm so glad to have his books and his presence in my life to keep me honest, to poke me, to make me laugh, and to make me cry and force me to speak with vulnerability the truth of this crazy life we all lead. Biekner calls us to pay attention. Last week I was talking about a book called Anxious People. And in that sermon I was talking about a man who had completed suicide, but he left a note for those who would find it, in particular a woman, a bank manager who did not give him the loan that he wanted, She carried that envelope around for years, unwilling to open it and look at the words. And finally, when she did open that envelope, there were the words, it wasn't your fault. And I was suggesting last week that so often we guilt or shame others or ourselves when we simply need to know lots of life just isn't our fault. It doesn't mean we go about willy-nilly, do whatever we want. We take responsibility for our faults. We seek to mend the mistakes we have made. But ultimately, we need to stop blaming ourselves and love ourselves simply by saying and repeating, it's not my fault. Last night at about 8.30 when I was coming off a golf course after a wine and dine, I was walking up the hill and the sun was setting and I thought how I would end this sermon as I thought about Fred Beekner's life at 10 and his father's suicide. And I imagined myself this way, that if there's a life beyond death, and Fred Beekner makes it, that he gets there and he sees his father. And he sees his mother who never spoke a word. And he runs toward them and throws his arms out, and he whispers in their ears, it wasn't your fault. And he can taste the salty tears dripping down his cheek and into his mouth, and he sees the twinkle in the eye of his father and mother as they embrace, and they say, let's go catch up on life. I don't know if that happened. But I do know all is lost, and all is found, and it's amazing grace. This is a brilliant life we get to live. May we live it to the fullest. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too, we invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. We're really glad you're here and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.